Welcome back to the Black Letter Podcast. We set out to create an entertaining and exciting podcast about law and business. Black Letter, the name, comes from the Gothic typeset. Over time, Black Letter became the only font that English law books were printed in. It made it harder for kind of the common person to understand what the English law books said. Black Letter came to represent something that was law, that was set in stone, that was sort of old and a well-settled fundamental principle of law. We're here to demystify black letter law. We're here to demystify things that happen in business and law and where those two meet. And I hope you have fun listening. Welcome back to another episode of the Black Letter Podcast. This week with me, my guest is Jen Morris, Jennifer Morris. Jen is a former spook, an attorney for the CIA. She was an attorney for the Navy, and she still has a top secret clearance, but now she's helping clients in the private sector with all kinds of interesting things. I think she's worked with Special Operations Command and a whole bunch of other secret squirrel folks. Uh, And we're going to talk to Jen a little bit about what she does, because it's sort of unique. It's a little bit different. It's not pure law, and it's not purely administrative. It falls somewhere in the middle, but it's really important. So with that introduction, Jennifer, why don't you give us a little bit of background about yourself, your history, because it is interesting, and I think it's really relevant to what you do. And then we'll just kind of dive in and talk about kind of what you think people should know and what's important about what you do. Sure, Tom. No problem. Thanks for having me on this morning. It's great to be here. As you mentioned, you know, I've been inside the government and inside businesses. I've served as in-house counsel for over 16 years inside government contractors and IT companies. And what I think that makes that really unique is that that allows me to bring a business perspective to the practice of law. A lot of lawyers that haven't served served in-house don't necessarily understand the full breadth of risk balancing and risk management because not every company can afford to do everything 100% compliant or 100% correct. So I'm able to help them make those choices and I'm used to watching the revenue recognition, increasing business sales, and all of those things for my clients. I've kind of been in all of the places, right? You've been in the government side, in alphabet soup agencies or at least the Central Intelligence Agency, you've been on the government side in the military, you've been in the private sector as inside counsel, in-house counsel, and then you've served as outside counsel in a private law firm like you do now, kind of wrapping all that experience up. So yeah, so tell us a little bit about, um, I guess, how you balance, how you take these experiences and use them for your clients, I guess, benefit. Sure. Well, I practice a lot inside government contracts and cybersecurity and technology transactions. And the way I bring my business experience in um, is a lot about compliance or contract management and streamlining. So the U.S. government is increasing its compliant initiatives twofold every single day. And as every government contractor knows, there's a million things you have to comply with. And how do you know what they are and how to comply with all of them? So that's really where I try to focus and help companies on everything from compliance with the FAR, the DFAR, as well as some of the cybersecurity standards like the NISC standards, CMMC, 800-171, some of the HIPAA requirements. And I find that most of my companies work in and around the government space or are in the government supply chain as managed service providers. So they touch and concern the government in some way. So you said CMMC. Has CMMC, is that a thing yet or is that a thing yet to be? And tell us a little bit about what CMMC is, because I think what little knowledge I have, I do some government contracts stuff on the 
dispute side and bid protest. But my understanding is that's a standard that's coming, but that we need to comply with now. And it's almost government wide, right? Uh, yes, it's actually the, the standard is coming out of the DOD. It's called the Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification. And it's in version okay. 2.0, which is in rulemaking now. Just a few weeks ago, I served on a panel with Stacey Bosjanic, who's the DOD executive in charge of CMMC. And she presented that the reason people are saying we need to complete with it now is that it's fundamentally based on NIST 800-171, which is a technical standard that applies across most of the government agencies. You see it popping up in education, certainly in healthcare. You see it in DOD, obviously, but even in the civilian agencies. Many times it's one of the certifications that clients sign when they sign up to do business with the government in SAM.gov. So let's break that down Barney style a little bit, like to the to the lowest common denominator so that sure. even I can understand it. So this involves complying with cybersecurity standards, data storage standards, things you have in the cloud, your customer databases, their personally identifiable information like social security numbers. What 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 does it involve? And I'm making stuff up. I don't know. I think that's what it involves. So if we just take a look at NIST 800-171, there's 110 requirements that are involved in complying with that. And it's not just, are your databases secure? Are your firewalls up to date? It's, do you have the right internal policies? Are you training your personnel on those policies? And do they know how to apply them? And the reason this is really important for businesses is not just the compliance piece, but cyber insurance companies and E&O corporate insurers are requiring compliance and often failing to do um, E&O insurance if contractors and clients do not have adequate compliance systems. They're denying coverage on E&O if the compliance wasn't there at the time of an incident. So how does one, how does a government contractor or somebody who touches the government that's required to comply, how do they know they're if, if they're in compliance? Uh, I mean, I assume people think, well, we're probably in compliance. It seems like we have good firewalls. We use Microsoft, FedRAMP, you know, whatever. We're using, we're, we bought the right things. Aren't we just in compliance automatically? My suggestion would always be to have an independent third party do an audit because they can do that electronically of your systems because then you at least have a path and you know where the gaps are and you can start to close them one by one. Sometimes it takes a great deal of time. So Jennifer, is that something you can help with, arrange the audit and manage that if they're, if the contractor is not familiar with that requirement? There's a lot of my clients that provide that auditing service. I can help write the policies and the procedures, but they really need to okay. do the technical. Is it like penetration testing or what kind of, okay. They do so, penetration um, testing. They also run through all the software that's being used and all devices connected to your network. So they identify right. whether somebody's using their own device at home and whether it's connecting to your network and how, and if that connection is VPN or unsecure. So there's lots of different tests that they can run to do that. Gotcha. So Jennifer, we've got some, some background about you now. Tell me a little bit about what's new in the world of cybersecurity with the DOD or the government in general. I understand some things are changing and there've been some recent cases that government contractors should be aware of. Absolutely. I mean, we already talked about the oncoming and implementation of CMMC. We've already talked about how insurers are often denying E&O coverage if 
contractors don't have enough written and executed contracts with their clients. And the most important reason that contractors should be focusing on their compliance efforts is that the Department of Justice is really ramping up its efforts to prosecute under the False Claims Act for false or misleading certifications. So every contractor, when they sign up for SAM.gov, when they execute a contract, every time they submit an invoice, if they're doing work with the government, they are certifying compliance. If they're a HIPAA provider, if they're using credit cards, they're certifying to the FTC. All of these certifications are now being potentially prosecuted under the False Claims Act. In fact, there's two cases that have just happened in the last couple of years. Um, the Aerojet Rocketdyne case settled for $9 million, where they did disclose their semi-lack of compliance, but the Department of Justice decided it was incomplete and insufficient. So they still had to settle under the False Claims Act for nine million. Yeah, well, I'm just curious, what was the not, how, what was the damages number based on? Um, the damages they don't reveal that in public, and I don't have the behind the scenes. I didn't represent Aerojet Rocketdyne, but um, generally the damages are based on invoices submitted to the government for payment. And so every time yeah. a contractor submits an invoice to payment, it's technically a claim, including how your hours are kept, your timekeeping. Um, if your costs are allocated correctly. So anytime there's a payment made based on information that might be misleading or incorrect, it's potentially punishable. Okay, so what are some of the do's and don'ts uh, of, in the cybersecurity world, things you that we need to understand right now to avoid getting charged with the False Claims Act claim, having a whistleblower, one of your employees step out on you? Uh, how do we avoid those things? I think it's easier to prepare than it is to actually avoid. But I would say that the first thing like a technology company or a managed service provider should do is make sure that their contracts or master services agreements are really tight and work with somebody who's worked in the tech field and is an attorney to ensure you have all the compliance policies in place and that you can provide evidence of the certifications. Just saying I'm compliant isn't enough for anyone. They actually want to see What's the policy say? How many times have you done training? Do you have the training exercises? So it's important to keep all those evidences. Okay. And do you have a compliance, um, I guess, training that you can do for clients or something you can give them a packet that explains? Okay. Absolutely. So we, okay, good. Because it's, it's something probably we need to, you know, push out to the world at large, uh, more information about this so people don't get caught out. Okay, so Jennifer, now, uh, I guess, considering everything we've talked about today, can you give me kind of three uh, questions that business owners should ask when they start considering whether or not they're going to do government contracting? You know, our firm's a government contractor, and the questions we asked ourselves, I'll just harken back to it, we have a lot of government contractor clients for the last 20 years, was, are we going to make money, and can we win this bid? And I feel like that's what a lot of people are asking themselves. But I feel like neither of those are the questions that you have. Um, that's absolutely right. I think, and, and naturally so, every business owner thinks about what's my profit, how am I going to win, and can I make the revenue? Revenue recognition is key in the business world. Understand that. But the real question that contractors should be asking themselves before they get a government contract is, am I really, really ready? Because you either have to have the ability to be compliant or be willing to spend the money to get into compliance. Because one false claim allegation by the Department of Justice could cripple your business and make it go completely out of business. And that's not what everybody 
thinks about when they're like, oh, I just won this large contract. Unless you're able to withstand those kind of settlement payments or fines, which many medium to small businesses are not, it's important to think about that in advance. So the first question you need to ask yourself is, am I compliant? Correct. Okay, what's question two? Um, the that? next one, it ties into section one, and I've seen and worked with a lot of clients where they're bidding on an RFP, but they haven't actually read the full RFP, and they don't even understand what it really means. Now, the government likes to throw in 150 contract clauses. Some of them are only referenced and not in there by full text. And many, many of those clauses have full compliance requirements behind them. You, know, you might be required to have a system of internal controls. You have to have anti-human trafficking. You have to have um, Buy American Act compliance and Tra Trade Agreements Act compliance. You also have to make sure that your procurement team and your subcontracting team knows how to purchase things in accordance with all of these thousands of requirements. And most people don't think right. about that. So buying stuff cheaply from overseas gets you in trouble with Buy America randomly, even if you're just buying laptops or something right. like that. So Absolutely. a lot of stuff you just don't think about. Okay, so the first one is, are you compliant or are you mm -hmm. ready to be compliant? The second question you need to ask yourself is, do I understand what the compliance requirements are? Have I read the full RFP? What's question three? The third question I would say is, um, you know, I work with a lot of small to medium-sized businesses. And so it's really important that they think about whether they actually qualify for small business size status. The U.S. government has to issue a certain number of contracts to small businesses. And there are multiple categories that companies can qualify you know, women-owned business, service-disabled business, veteran-owned business, an 8A company. And these are set-aside advantages that companies can use in order to get compete against only a smaller pool of contractors so that they're not competing against the Goliaths in the industry. They're, they're competing against like-minded peers. And if they can get qualified as a small business contractor with a small business administration, they qualify for these set-aside or possibly even sole source contracts with no competition at all. So am I compliant? Have I read the RFP? Do I understand the compliance? And have I considered whether or not I'm actually small? And if you're not small, and we just, I just went through this and what I do, filing an SBI si SBA size protest against another party because they were owned by a private equity firm, something, something, something. I won't go into the details, but it made them very much not small. What's the flip side of that? If you're if you're bidding against people and they're not small or they're not compliant or they haven't read the RFP and you kind of know that, uh, what is it a business can do? If they're not small and like you said, they think they should be small or they think they should be large, um, a business can protest, okay. like you said, on a size standard determination. If a client can work with an attorney who's been in-house with the government and understands how the government works, and has been inside a company, so understands the balancing they're trying to do of the risk, then sometimes you can create um, guidance documents or white papers given to the government as informative educational materials that can actually help them understand how your services might be unique and you might be the only one responsible source. So if you can explain to the government how you might qualify as only one responsible source, you might be eligible to get a sole source award, whether you're large or small which is absolutely the best thing you can get, a sole source right. award, I'm guessing. 
So any experiences that you can share that are outside of, you know, top secret clearance stuff or client confidentiality stuff, is there anything you can share anecdotally that can kind of give listeners an idea of how all of this stuff intersects and comes into play when you're working with clients? Let me think about that for just a second. I mean, it's, you know, when I work in-house with a company, you know, all the pieces of an organization play together. So you have the sales team pushing the deals, working on the RFPs, making the connections. The sales team can't submit a compliant proposal unless they're working with their contracts and procurement team in order to make sure they're compliant and that they hit every element of the RFP. Everybody gets really excited and they want to just talk about how great they are, which is fantastic, but you have to be very methodical about the RFPs. So you have the business team, the sales team. You also have to price your proposal properly because you have to certify that it's accurate and complete. So I think when you think about how to do that, it's important for companies to make all three of those elements work together faster and easier because more time is less profit. Makes sense. Jennifer, anything else for the good of the people listening out there that you want to share about your practice or about government contracts? What I've pulled away is that, and I think it's important that most of us, when we bid on government contracts, think about, you know, who am I teaming with? How much money can I make? What's my work share? What's my return going to be? And how are we pricing? Because they think about pricing and they think about how best to put themselves and win the RFP. But honestly, I think the compliance aspect of this, like, Am I ready if I win this contract? Am I immediately subject to losing the contract? So am I compliant? Have I read all the check boxes? Is my book boss a compliance person? Um, all of those things are things that people don't think about. And I, I appreciate that. And I've taken that away from this conversation. Is there anything else you want to add that we've missed or forgotten? I think that companies are often afraid to reach out for help. And there's a lot of help available out there. The Small Business Administration can help small businesses. They have counselors and many organizations set aside to help with that. There's lots of consultants or accountants that can help with your cost accounting if that's the if that's the issue. And there's also firms like ours, Tom, who work a lot with small businesses and have affordable rates for small businesses that can come in, do a review, and help plan a project plan for clients so that they don't have to think about it. They don't have to figure it out. They can simply outsource it. Compliance as a service is huge. Thank you, Jennifer, very much for joining us on this Black Letter podcast. Um, I'm sure we will see you on future ones. And if you haven't, listeners and viewers out there, Jennifer has a number of posts and other things on the DBL website about compliance that will be useful as a resource to you. So please check those out and feel free to reach out to Jennifer if you've got questions about this. Thanks for joining us on this episode of the Black Letter podcast. Jennifer, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Tom. Have a great afternoon. You too. And everybody download this wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again. And we'll see you next time on the Black Letter Podcast. That's all for today's episode of Black Letter. Thanks again for listening. Join us next time when we talk about more Black Letter issues in creative ways. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode and check out our website at blackletterstudios.com.